All right, let's, let's uh, welcome our pastor with the big hair. All right. <laughs> did, you, uh, I, I, did you mention uh, turning off cell phones and stuff? Please turn no, off your no. cell phones. I even forgot that. Cell phones, turn off or silent. Uh, and yeah, there you go. But all than that, you did pretty good. I'd give it a, a minus or so. Um, it's a... But I've been on a, a dozen mission trips, and uh, you know, get, get going there, girl. Like I went on the Cambodia one about uh, ten, nine years ago, and that was uh, that was just blowing my mind. Back uh, then, I was blowing my mind. Now I'm blowing my hair. Uh, okay, so if I, you know, if you aren't, don't know what's going on here, I, there's two more weeks left before I do the final shooting in this movie that I'm playing a homeless guy in, and so that's my ambiance has changed somewhat. Uh, I'm just getting groovier and groovier all the time. <laughs> But uh, it's so fun having hair. It's like you can do things with it. I, I, you know, you, you women have it so good. I mean, you can, I, I can comb it this way or that way. I don't do it in public very much, but I can get a cone head going. In fact, in two weeks, uh, the last service, uh, I'm going to bring a brush. And at the end of the message, I'm going to like comb it all out just so you see what's going on there. It, it looks so ridiculous. It goes like this. It's just... I could be the flying nun if, I, if a wind draft caught me, the flying preacher. And then I got this uh, cool shirt going on here. Can you get it? Can you see this thing? Uh, this is the devolution of human beings. Uh, a guy in Sweden. Isn't that, isn't that cool? So you got, you know, here's human beings upright. And then we, then we start, we, we, get a, we get a club and then a knife and then a gun and then a bazooka. Bazooka. Wait, bazooka oh, there. Bazooka. Yeah, guess it's hard. You're going opposite. So, yeah. And then see how we look. Anyways, you get more and more ape-like. I think it makes a good statement. Huh? We think we're, almost, we're improving on our intelligence? Not so much. All right. A guy in Sweden uh, sent me this. Uh, if you follow me on, on, on Twitter, Twitter, that thing, uh, I tweeted uh, where you can get this. So if you want to, you should be following me on Twitter. Anyways, I have all the stuff I'm always talking about. Okay. We are getting into the word here this morning. We are going to... Uh, dig in. You know, if you're not a regular at Wilderness Church, um, you really ought to be. I mean, this is, this, it, we're rocking. But uh, beyond that, like, okay, we're going to get, we, you know, this, it, this is a very smart church, all right? This is, so we, 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 you know, sometimes get into stuff in a pretty deep way. It's a well-known fact. The IQ level of this place is just higher than average, all right? That's just basic. And we're more modest, too. That's the big thing. So uh, we're in Colossians. We're in Colossians. Uh, we're going to be talking about five verses here. In fact, we'll be talking about this for probably the next two weeks or so. Because it's just profound, profound stuff. Um, you're going to learn uh, at least two and maybe three Greek words this morning. This is going to be theologically intense. That's why I said that word about IQ stuff. It's gonna be, you're going to have to be thinking during this thing because we're going to get into this deep. Uh, this is going to be intense theology. You're going to learn three Greek words or so. In fact, the title of this message is this. Filling the hysterion, hysterema, I mean, filling the hysterema. Uh, hysterema is this Greek word that means lacking, as we'll see here in a moment. And it's going to be a very important word for you to remember, hysterema. In fact, everybody say hysterema. hysterema. Let's say it again with passion. Hysterema. hysterema. It's a very important word. Uh, filling the hysterema, and we're reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Listen to this. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, Paul says. That's odd. I'm rejoicing that I am suffering for you, in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh. This is one of the most puzzling verses in the New Testament. 
I'm filling up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. My suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ. Isn't that odd? How can there be something lacking in Christ's afflictions? I'm doing that for the sake of the body, for his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. There's so much meat here. Man, this has just got, we might be on this for five weeks, I don't know. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And what is this mystery? It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. That'll be next week or the week after. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy. Ergos. There, we'll get to that word later on too. With all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Mm. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, I feel such, uh, such energy around this word. Uh, I just offer that up to you. We offer this moment up to you. We pray, Lord God, for every person in this auditorium listening through podcast, television, whatever, God, wherever they're at, I, I pray, Lord, you'd help them to be present and awake right now, aware of your presence. They're sitting and running or washing dishes in, in your presence. And Lord, then open up their minds and hearts to receive this word deeply, profoundly, in a way that will impact them. And change them. I pray, Father, Abba, Father, that you open our eyes in this message to see more clearly than we've ever seen before your true nature and, and the beautiful relationship that you want with us and have, have, have uh, purchased for us in Christ. And, and, and God, the, the significance that we have for you in, in your plan. I pray, Lord God, we just capture the significance of our lives uh, as, as co-partners with you in carrying out the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray, God, that that would give us a fire, a fuel, to, to really, uh, with a sense of urgency, live out the kingdom in our life. Yes, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Break down strongholds. Rid, rid us of lies. Burn away chaff. Do your work. Do your work. Let your word go forth powerful and effective like a two-edged sword. Mm. Cutting away all that shouldn't be there. And searing into our heart everything that should be. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said... Amen, amen. All right. Let's dig into this. There's two questions that this first verse, verse 24, raises. The verse about Paul suffering to fill up what is lacking in Christ. Um, two, two questions it raises. One is, why is Paul rejoicing? Notice he, he doesn't rejoice in spite of his sufferings or in the midst of sufferings. He's saying, I rejoice in these sufferings. It has the connotation of, I'm rejoicing because of these sufferings. Like, I like these sufferings. <laughs> What's up with that? The second question it raises is, uh, how can his joyful suffering fill up what Christ is lacking, what Christ's afflictions lack? Uh, how can Christ's afflictions, his suffering on the cross, lack anything? Strange, strange passage. Now, you might be inclined to think, and, and it's, here's the thing, if we can figure out how Christ's suffering is lacking something, and, and how Paul is filling it up, then we can begin to understand how Paul is joyful in the midst of the suffering. So that's the goal for this message. Why is Paul joyful, and what is he filling up? And the two go hand in hand. Now, you might initially think that maybe the questions can be answered by getting into the original language. And sometimes, 
that's true. You can find clarity uh, by, by getting into the original language. There may be a translation problem here. Sometimes that's true. In this case, it's not. Uh, the word to fill up, antanaplerao, means to fill up, <laughs> to complete or to supply. That's what the word means. The word lacking, hysterema. Everyone say hysterema. That's the important word. It means shortcoming or defect or need or deficit or want. So the translation captures exactly what the Greek is saying. There's no way around it. There's a hysterema in Christ's suffering. There's a hysterema in Christ's afflictions. And Paul is filling up that hysterema, that shortcoming, that deficit, that lack. So what is going on with this uh, passage this passage is troubling, I think, uh, primarily because there's, there's two deeply entrenched beliefs that most Christ, Western Christians have, and this, this passage collides with those beliefs. The first is this. We, we tend to think, or at least tend to feel, that all suffering is in, inherently bad and we have a right not to go through it. So we wonder, how could Paul be rejoicing in the suffering? And that belief, I think, is mistaken. I think much suffering in the world is intrinsically bad, and human beings have a right not to go through it, but not all. Uh, if a person is, is, is raped or, or stricken with cancer, or if they're kidnapped, or if their child is kidnapped, or if they're starving to death, there's nothing good about that. That's just pure evil. That's the result of this world being oppressed by demonic forces. It's a consequence of human sin, uh, it, 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 but it, it's in no sense God's will. That's not stuff that Paul or anyone else should be rejoicing in. In fact, uh, you can see in Jesus' life, he's the perfect revelation of God, the one and only perfect disclosure of what God is really like. And so you can know that everything he came against in his lifetime, in his ministry, is stuff that God does not will. Uh, he manifests God's will by coming against it. So when he comes against oppression and various structures of the society that, that oppress people, and he comes against sickness and disease and things like that, you can know that he's manifesting God's will against those things. Those aren't the kind of things that Paul rejoices in. He might rejoice in spite of those kind of sufferings or in the midst of those kind of sufferings, but he wouldn't rejoice because of those sufferings. The kind of sufferings that Paul is rejoicing in are very, is a specific category. And these are the sufferings that fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And we'll get to what that means here in a little bit. But he's not saying there's any, this isn't like some you know, statement about suffering in the world in general. Secondly, and this one we're going to have to spend a little more time on. This passage is troubling because there's a belief that I think most Christians have to some degree. And that's that God and Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they may want us and they may love us, but we're not inclined to think that they need us or that Jesus needs, that God needs us, really needs us. And so it's hard, this passage conflicts with that because here it looks like Paul is saying that uh, he is suffering to fill up something that God needs him to fill up because there's something lacking in Christ. And, and, and there's a long tradition in, the, in, in Western theology uh, of, of separating God talk, anything to do with God, from need talk, needs. A long tradition that it's taboo to say, think that God wants anything or that God needs, not, not that he wants something, but that God needs something from us. And this passage, it makes it kind of jarring to hear, like, Jesus needs us to fill up something that he's lacking. It doesn't seem to fit because of this belief. Now, what's behind this widespread belief is, is this. 
most of the theology done in the Western culture throughout history and yet to this day is done by males, by men. And most men throughout Western history have tended to assume that neediness and vulnerability are weak, a sign of weakness. And so since God is never weak, he must never be in need and he must never be vulnerable. Uh, God never wants something that he doesn't already have. God never experiences pain in the Western theological tradition. The thinking is that God's all-powerful. And if he's all-powerful, he can't be weak or vulnerable or needy. That's weak. If he's all-powerful, he has the power to get whatever he wants. And the assumption has been that, therefore, he uses that power to get whatever he wants. So God has always had everything he wants. There's never a deficit. There's never a need. So we separate God talk from from need talk in in the Western tradition. God, God is, is all, all, all self-sufficient. In fact, this is uh, a, a doctrine that's been held in, in theological circles throughout, throughout Western history. It's the self-sufficiency of God. The self-sufficiency of God. And when that's taken to mean simply that God doesn't depend on anyone else to exist, I fully agree with it. He's self-sufficient. He's, 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 he's self-existent. He, he, didn't, he wasn't born. He's never, his life has never threatened and so on. Yeah, in that sense, he's self-sufficient. But in the Western tradition, this has been taken to mean much more than that. It's often taken to mean that God is never put in a position where he needs anything. God, God never puts himself in a position where he wants something that he doesn't already have. It's often taken to mean that God never uh, is in a position where he's vulnerable. God never is in a position where he experiences pain. God never experiences hurt. He never, uh, he, it's often taken to mean that he never changes in any sense. That nothing affects him. That, that, that he influences everything else, but nothing influences him. He's self-sufficient. Everything he does, he just does out of his own motivation. And nothing outside of him affects him. It, it, it uh, reminds me of that song. Uh, in the early, in the late 60s, by Simon and Garfunkel. And I, and I just occurred to me last service, I look kind of like Garfunkel, don't I? <laughs> and the song... I, yes, I, do. Uh, I, I am a rock, I am an island. I am a rock, I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. Or maybe it's the opposite, I don't know, but one of those two. But yeah, that, that, it's, it's self-sufficiency. I'm above pain. I'm above, I'm above uh, you know... Uh, I'm an island, I'm a rock, I'm solid. And I, I bet there's at least three women listening either in this auditorium or through podcasts who are thinking to themselves, man, that sounds like my husband. I mean, I, he's an emotional rock. He never opens up to me. He never gets phased by anything. He doesn't worry about anything. He's, he, he, he never discloses what he's feeling. And, and he's just a, an iceberg. And in fact, there's a lot of husbands that would maybe fall into that category. Because a lot of us males, now this can happen to women too, but there's a, it tends to happen more with males in Western culture, uh, where, where we were raised with this idea of strength. It's a rock, it's an island. It's, it's a kind of macho idea of strength. That uh, uh, you know, be, to be needy and vulnerable is, 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 is weak. And, and so we want to be strong. We're raised with this. I, I, I was, I... I Distinctly remember when, when I when I became a rock in an island. I was six years old. I, I've shared some of this yeah, at different times up here, but um, I was raised in a home where uh, I had a stepmother who was just very abusive, and so the woman I needed to give me love beat the crap out of me frequently. And and I, I remember at, at the age of six in my backyard, Lansing, Michigan, I had a box of matches that I was lighting, and that was my act of defiance, because I wasn't supposed to play with matches, but I got some, and I was just lighting them and throwing them in the, the pond just to be defiant. And I don't know what led to this, but I remember thinking to myself, very, as like yesterday, it's so clear, 
I said, I, mom doesn't like me. She just doesn't like me. I might as well admit it. She doesn't like me, so I'm not going to like her. And I made a decision. I, I, I'm done needing something I'm never going to get. I didn't put it in these terms, but this is what was going on in my head, age of six. I'm done feeling pain. I'm done needing her. I, I, I got to survive. I'm going to survive. I, I promised myself. I'm going to survive. I'm going to conquer. I, I'm not going to be weak. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to need her. I don't need her. I don't need protection. I, I don't need nobody. I don't need love. I don't need affection. I don't need anything. I'm a rock. I'm an island. And, and it amazes me, but that worked profoundly well. I didn't feel anything. I, 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 I never cried. Um, my, my mom could take a two-by-four at me, uh, and, and I would just sit and stare at her. And I developed a capacity to do that. I wouldn't give her the satisfaction of knowing that she inflicted pain on me. In fact, sometimes I would have this kind of attitude of, uh, is that all you got? That was nothing. Is that, is that all you got? Developed it towards mother superior, too, in school, because she did the same thing. It worked. From the age of 6 to 20, when we were 19 or 20, I, I only remember crying twice in my life. Uh, one, once was when I thought I was sure that my dad was going to go to prison because he was going to kill my stepmother. And I wasn't sad that my stepmother was going to get killed, but I didn't want my dad to go to prison for the rest of my life. And, and, and uh, anyway, it was a fight that just got so violent. Oh, I, I, it looked like he was going to kill her, and I, I cried. Um, fortunately, that didn't happen, but... Uh, the other time I cried is because a girl dumped me at the age of 17, and it was very painful. I really liked her. She dumped me. <sighs> the only thing that, ever, that hurts. So I wasn't a total rock. I had some feelings there. Uh, but but I, I had feelings, but I could, I could turn them off when I wanted to. I could just turn them off. It's crazy. The thing was, I felt strong. I, you feel strong. Whatever happens, I'm above it, you know? And the world could be falling apart. When I look back on that history, that part of my history... There's a lot of traumatic stuff going on. The family blew apart, sister running away, all sorts of bad stuff, and nothing fazed me. I didn't need to talk about it with anybody. I, I, I was above it. Other people, you know, I'd be in circumstances where they'd be crying or they'd be anxious or they'd be nervous, and uh, Greg doesn't. I won't get that low. I'm above that. I'm a rock. I'm an island. I felt so strong. I got married at the age of 22, and, and a lot of healing had happened by then because I had known the Lord for four years, and, and so there was a softening that went on. I got reconciled with my stepmother and whatnot. But I was still quite a, quite a rock, something of an island. Um, and my poor wife, Shelly, you know, she, she just, when she, was be, when she would be anxious about something or, or worried and, or, or in pain about something, I just couldn't enter in, into it. And she, so she always felt alone. I would try to, oh, but she knew that I didn't really feel it. Oh, that's really, oh, that's, oh, yeah, what are we going to do? But I didn't feel any, I didn't have it. She'd always be like saying, you know, why can't you open up to me? You know, why, you never tell me what you're feeling. You, you never, you know, don't you ever get worried? Don't you ever get phased by anything? You know, what are, one thing she said, I feel like you're floating up here in some kind of a ethereal zone. And, and, and so you never share what's going on in your heart. And like a lot of husbands, I was like, there ain't nothing there. <laughs> I don't know what are you talking about. You know, I can talk theology. I'll go deep with you on that. But feelings, nothing more than feelings. I, I didn't, I felt stuff, but I just didn't feel that. Uh, I think a lot of wives feel that. And, and then there's some husbands who feel that because w- women can become icebergs. A, a lot of people, married or not, you, 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 know, you know people or you are a person who has cut off your feelings for one reason or another. The thing is that life, life's painful. We live in a fallen, pain-stricken world. Almost for everybody, there's, there's pain. And, and, and in a world that is full of pain, 
Not being able to feel it can be a real advantage. Being a rocker on an island has its distinct advantage, advantages. You can survive. When other people are falling apart, you plow forward. There's some advantages to that. And so it's not too surprising that uh, throughout history, um, men in particular, others as well, but, but primarily men, have come to see that rock and island mindset as being equivalent to strength and virtue. To be a rock and an island is strong and virtuous. We admire that. Which means that to be needy and vulnerable is a weakness and even a vice. And since God is the supreme virtue and the supreme strength, well, then God must be the supreme rock and the supreme island. See how that follows? And so what you have throughout history, is uh, done mainly by, by males, is a, a picture of God as, as something of a rock and an island. And it, it dates way before the time of Christ. Aristotle, the Greek uh, philosopher in the uh, 5th century B.C., 4th century B.C., um, he said the supreme being is, he defined it as the unmoved mover. The unmoved mover. God moves everything, but nothing moves God. God influences everything, but nothing influences God. It's a one, it's a unidirectional kind of a thing here. Um, and he had, you know, I, and I'm way oversimplifying things here because he had a lot of profound thinking that went into that. I think it was mistaken, but I know why he got to that conclusion. But that, that, that there's something else going on there too, and that's, this is what virtue and power and might looks like to, to folks in Western culture. And then Christian theologians appropriated that model of God. Despite the fact that at the center of our faith is a God who became a human being and died on a cross, they, to a large degree, define God as an unmoved mover. A God is, is uh, they define it as immutable and impassable, above having passions and above any sort of change. If they were only referring to the, the stability of God's character, well, I would say yes to that, but they took it way beyond that. That God, God is the one who determines all, but nothing determines God. That unidirectional kind of, uh, God is a monopoly on the power. So God gets everything he wants. Everything is going according to the way he wants. He's a rock. He's an island. The unmoved mover. And a lot of the paradoxes and mysteries that plague, or at least that accompany uh, theology throughout uh, Western history, are the result of theologians trying to take this unmoved mover uh, view of God and combine it with the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, who becomes a human being and dies on a cross. Okay, how do you put these two things together? Um, well, you can't. And so we call it mystery. Uh, and I, I call it a contradiction. And it's an unnecessary one because I don't think we had any business appropriating the unmoved remover picture of God in the first place. But that's how it goes. It's... it's, it's Characterized Western theology from, from the, almost the start, 5th century at least. I've read and I've heard uh, many theologians and pastors say things like this. That any suggestion that God in any sense needs human beings to do anything, that God is, is in want. Any suggestions that human can, humans can give God something he doesn't already have. That humans contribute to, to, to God, 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 God's experience. Any suggestion along those lines. Any suggestion that God can be affected or hurt. Why, that, that you're, you're demeaning God. You're robbing God of his glory. You're denying his supremacy. You, you have a small God. I've had people in, in books have said that about my view of God. It's a weak God. It's a, uh, God's lesser glory. Uh, your God is too small. Because I think God can be vulnerable and can feel pain and things of that sort, as we'll see here in a moment. This macho image of, of God and this macho image of strength has, I think, had catastrophic consequences uh, for the church uh, throughout history. Among other things, look at it. It's, as a lot of wives would, would, would tell you, uh, it's very hard 
to be passionately and, and uh, vibrantly and meaningfully related to a person who's a rock and an island. It's hard to have a personal relationship to someone who is, is above feeling pain and is above getting influenced and affected and, and, and is impervious to that. How do you relate like that? And I said the same thing holds true of God. How do you relate to a God who, who is up in this eternal now and untouched by anything? Another consequence is, is this. If God doesn't need us in any sense of the word, if God doesn't need us, well then, we really don't contribute anything to God, which means our lives are rather insignificant. We don't, we don't really accomplish much. Nothing really hangs on what we do. Especially if you think that God always gets what he wants, well then, then he's already getting what he wants. So what do I have to add to this? And it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of Christians have a model of Christianity that's basically this. Our job is to believe true things and be saved and then die and go to heaven. So life is a matter of kind of waiting around to go to heaven because there's really not much to do. Now, of course, we should be nice and all that kind of stuff, but there's not, nothing really hangs on our decisions. Uh, even more fundamental than that, I learned over time, largely through my being married to Shelley, that wonderfully patient woman that I was married to. I'm, I am married to. <laughs> and uh, having good friendships and just knowing the Lord over, over uh, decades, I, I've really come to understand that, there, that being a rock in an island is not being strong at all. Uh, it is, in fact, weak. It, it's weak. Uh, look, at when I became a rock in an island when I was six years old, I, uh, I, I did it. It felt strong and it looked strong. But in fact, it was birthed out of weakness. As a six-year-old, I just wasn't strong enough to take it. As a six-year-old, to survive, I had to just cut off the emotional nervous system. As a six-year-old, I couldn't stand, I couldn't deal with needing something that I wasn't getting, needing a woman's love who wasn't going to give it to me. As a six-year-old, I couldn't take the physical and emotional pain I was getting, so I had to become a rock, I had to become an island. But that's not because I was strong, it's because I was weak. It felt strong, but it was birthed out of weakness. And I submit to you, that's always the case. Uh, well, you, you show me a guy who's, who's the macho man, who's just strong, impervious of the feel, you know, who's a rock on an island. And I guarantee you that, that if you could get under that rock, you'd find a whole lot of wound and a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of fear. And that's what that bravado was covering up. Now, the person probably doesn't know it. I didn't know it. Uh, you know, you're not intentionally doing this, but... It becomes who you are. You're hiding a whole lot of pain. It's birthed out of weakness. There's nothing strong about it at all. And I think the same is true of the picture of God that is, that is uh, uh, birthed out of that. There's nothing strong about an unmoved mover. Uh, that is, I believe to some degree, and I'm oversimplifying here because there's a lot of logic that goes behind this stuff, but one of the things that is driving this is I think we're projecting onto God our fear, our weakness, our worries, our pain. And, and so the, 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 the macho thing that we apply to ourselves, we apply to God. We get a macho God. There's nothing strong about that. A God who would be above ever needing anything, or a God who would be above uh, putting himself in a position where he could be impacted and influenced by others, a God who's above uh, ever putting himself in a position where he might get hurt, that is a weak God. That's a weak God. A God who, I mean, the picture of God is immutable and impassable and invulnerable, who can't be affected. That is a, I submit to you, a weak picture of God. A God who would have to create a world where he had to have the assurance that everything would, that, that he would never experience pain. He had to have the assurance that everything would go his way. A God who had to, who is afraid of risks, but has to control everything and predestine everything and has a monopoly and all the power and is afraid of, of sharing any, any of it. That is, I submit to you, a weak 
Picture of God. Now, if you have a macho picture of strength, that looks strong to you. But I submit to you, there's nothing strong about it at all. It's not, it's not the, the, the strong God that I, re- I find in the Bible. Um, when I look at, read the scriptures, I see a strong God who is, he didn't have to do it this way. He chose to do it this way. But, but he gets impacted by people. What, what people do? He gets influenced by people. I, he, it, it matters what people do. He changes his plans based on what people do. Uh, he, he, there's a weeping God, a God who feels pain, a God who experiences frustration. He didn't have to do that, but he's strong enough to do that. He wasn't afraid of doing that. You see, a weak God would never have done this. This is a God who's strong. He's even a God who sometimes is, has created a world where he finds himself needing help. He didn't have to do that. But he was strong enough to do it. So you read, for example, in Judges. And this is Old Testament. You've got to always make some adjustments when you're, when you're reading Old Testament stuff. And I don't have time to get into that right now. But just read this. This angel says, curse Moraz, curse its people bitterly. Because they did not come to help the Lord. There you go. To help the Lord against the mighty. What? God needed help? Apparently. Of course, he could have done it otherwise. But... He, he's a God who's strong enough to choose to create a world where he's like, I need you to be helping me on this. To at least accomplish some purpose. Does he need, is his overall plan for creation threatened? Of course not. But there, he, he chooses to create a world where there are certain plans that will not be carried out unless, unless his people step up and, and do what he calls them to do. So it's not the God that I find, the strong God, the confident God, the risk-taking God that I find in Scripture. It certainly isn't the God, this unmoved mover picture of God. It's not the God I see revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's the most important thing, because all of our thinking has got to be grounded in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation. The word there is character. He's the character of the Father's essence, hypostasis, his very innermost being. And you only find the, the, the absolutely true picture of God in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? All of our thinking about God must be centered on Jesus. Never Fix your eyes on Jesus when you're thinking about God. And when you do that, I submit to you, the last thing you're going to conclude is that God is a rock or God is an island. Fix your eyes on Jesus as you're thinking about God. And the last thing you're going to conclude is that God never in any sense changes. Look at Jesus is God become. Look at that verb. God become a human being. There's a verb there. A verb means action. He, he wasn't a human being, but he became a human being. Change, change. It's a change I love. Whenever it's loving to do so, God's willing to change. He becomes a human being. That's a pretty significant change. And you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. The last thing you're going to conclude is that God is above, quote unquote, feeling pain or above being affected by others. This is a, a God who, for goodness sake, he, he gets himself crucified, whipped and beaten. This is a God who's strong enough to put himself in a situation where he cries. Put himself in a situation where he needs help from others as he says, can I get a drink of water? Uh, well, you know, he needs help carrying the cross. This is a God who's strong enough to put himself in a position, as I said last week, where he reveals his greatness by how small he becomes. He reveals how exalted he is by, 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 by becoming debased. He reveals his glory by taking on our shame. He reveals, he reveals his power by becoming weak. He reveals his wisdom by, by looking foolish. He reveals his royalty by becoming a servant. He reveals his holiness by becoming our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is, this is the strong God here, folks. But this is not some kind of unmoved mover, impervious, invulnerable, immutable, impassable God. No, this is a radical God, a God of beauty and a God of, of true strength. When you look at Jesus Christ, you're saying what real strength looks like. So, why men, don't, don't, don't try to define what masculinity is by, you know, looking at 
Tom Cruise on Mission Impossible. <laughs> no, no, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Even in Christian circles, there's so much of this macho stuff out there. Men, they, we're the hunters and gatherers and women, whatever. And it, no, no, keep your eyes fixed on it. Here we see, in Jesus Christ, we see a picture of strength that is beautiful. This is, this is true strength. True strength, true, true strength is not afraid of becoming vulnerable or not above feeling emotions and not above being in a position of need when it's loving to do so. True strength is having the ability and the willingness to experience pain when it's loving to do so. True strength is, is being, having the ability and, and having the willingness uh, to, to change when it's loving to do so. True strength is, is, is when, making sacrifices when it's loving to do so. True strength is found when you have ability and the willingness to need others when it's loving to do so. And I submit to you that even God does that. That's what's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, that long excursion was necessary to understand this passage. That was a little, a little detour there. Uh, yeah, it was Greg riding his hobby horse, I admit. But uh, look, at uh, here's the thing. So long as you're holding on to a macho picture of God, you're going to have a hard time making sense out of this passage. Because this passage here explicitly says that Paul, it was, God needed Paul, commissioned Paul to fill in this uh, uh, hysterema. There's a hysterema. There's a shortcoming, a deficiency that God needed Paul to fill in. So now the question is, what is this hysterema? And what does it have to do with us? Okay. Uh, and if we understand that, we're going to understand why Paul is, uh, was joyful in suffering to fill this up. Okay, so what is this history and what is this lack? First, let me say what it's not. The deficiency clearly was not in Christ what's called his atoning work, the work that brought forgiveness and freedom and liberation to all of human beings. Uh, there's no deficiency in what Christ did on the cross to reconcile us to God. Throughout the New Testament, we read that there's one Savior, his name is Jesus Christ. He doesn't need help being a Savior. Uh, there's, there's one who atones for our sin. There's one mediator between God and man. There's one high priest who intercedes for us. There, there's one lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't need help on that. We're not called to be little lambs that help take away the sin of the world. <laughs> no, when it comes to that, he alone does it. That's why it says in 1 John 2 uh, that he, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. It's covered already, folks. You can't add to it. <laughs> it's done. Uh, there's no improvement necessary. I think what Christ did on the cross is more than sufficient a trillion times over to save every person in all history. Uh, a trillion times over. He doesn't need help in that area. That's why Peter preaches that there's salvation found only in him because there's no other name uh, in, uh, given to us whereby we must be saved. He doesn't need help on that. There's no other names that are going to contribute to that. So he's not talking about Christ's atoning work on the cross. There's no history of there. What is he talking about? The answer to that is found right in the text. If we read it carefully, look at it again. We read this. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking, hysterema, in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. You see the hysterema there. Uh, the thing is, Jesus' sacrifice was a trillion times more than sufficient to free the Colossians. This book is written to the Colossians. And, and Jesus' death was, was a trillion times sufficient, more than sufficient, to, to 
free the Colossians from condemnation and to free the Colossians from their, their oppression uh, to the devil and to free the, the Colossians from their alienation from sin. Jesus alone did that. But see, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't sufficient to bring that good news to them, to proclaim that good news to them, to uh, uh, help them receive that good news and be transformed by that good news. Jesus' death on the cross was, was, was a trillion times more than sufficient to bring out the forgiveness of the Colossians and to reconcile them to God. But it wasn't. Christ's death on the cross wasn't itself sufficient to get them to hear it and to get them to become mature in it and be transformed by it and then to transform them to become ambassadors of the kingdom. No, for that, that was the hysterema. And that was what God commissioned Paul to fill and others as well, to fill up what is still lacking in the, the death of Christ. And so it applies to us. Jesus' death is a trillion times more than sufficient to atone for all the sin of the world. He needs no help on that. But there's still a hysterema in the world. God still has a hysterema that he needs us to fill. He needs people now who are going to receive what Christ did on the cross and, and, and trust in what Christ did on the cross and be transformed by what Christ did on the cross and be matured by what Christ did on the cross and then become workers of the kingdom by what Christ did on the cross and to invite others in uh, to benefit from my, what Christ did on the cross. He doesn't do that all by himself. No, here he needs people to step in and to fill up what is still lacking. It's like Jesus' death is the mustard seed, plants the mustard seed of the kingdom, but now for it to grow and take over the rest of the garden, he needs, he needs some help. He needs people to step up. It's like Jesus, uh, his death won the cosmic lottery, <laughs> if you will. That, that uh, is a million times uh, uh, enough uh, to, pay, to get everybody on the planet out of spiritual debt. Is this analogy going to work? I don't know. It just hit me right now. I didn't use any of the services, but I'm going to try it out on you. Uh, he, okay, he won that lottery. It's always dangerous to use those kind of analogies as a preacher, but here I'm, I'm Mario. I've already done it. I can't back out now. Here, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> He won the lottery, and, he, and we all benefit. He could get us out of debt, but he still needs people to deliver the checks, the lottery checks. And that's us. He calls us to do that. This is why. This is why we're called co-workers in the Bible. We're co-workers of the kingdom. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each re- be rewarded according to their own labor. That there's a reward there. For we are God's co-workers. Now, we're co-worker is really interesting. It comes from the combination of sin, not S-I-N, but S-Y-N, uh, which means alongside of, and the word ergos. We get the word energy from the word ergos. It means work or energy or action or power. Ergos. So sin ergos, sin ergos means exercising energy or action or power alongside of another. Its literal translation is, 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 is synergy. Synergos gives us synergy. And um, here's how Webster defines synergy. Combined action or operation or the mutually advantageous conjunction of distinct participants or elements. I love these definitions. Yes, but it captures what's going on. As co-workers of God, synergos, we are called to combine our action with God's action, to combine our energy with God's energy. We're called to conjoin our lives with his life for the mutually advantageous advancement of the kingdom of God here on earth. That's what it is to be a co-worker. We've got ergos. We've got energy and we bring it alongside of him. There really is a hysterema that we're, that we're called to, to fill. There really is work for us to do. So God needs us to do that, which means if we don't do that, the hysterema is still there. Things really hang in the balance on this. God's not playing charades when he calls us co-workers. He's not like, he, he, he 
at, he pretends like he's giving us ergos, but he really didn't. He, he says that there's a hysterema, but there really is not. He, he calls us to be co-workers, but we're really not. As though he's behind the scenes controlling everything, but you know, making us think that we have a part to play here. No, that doesn't play charades. We really are co-workers. There really is a hysterema. There really is an ergos that we have an energy. We have a say-so and, and influence. And God needs us, really does need us. We're not playing charades here. Needs us to step up and fill what is still lacking in the afflictions of Christ. There's an important role that we play. That's why we're called the body of Christ. We're called the body of Christ, which whatever else it entails, and it entails a lot, but it suggests that Christ needs his body like you need your body. How much good are you without your body? <laughs> you can't do a whole lot without your body. Uh, I'm up here preaching to you, and that's because I got a body. Your body. <laughs> well, you know, I couldn't do this if my body wasn't working. I, there'd be, I need my mouth to be moving in a certain way, my lips to be agreeing with my neurons in my brain. I need my tongue to waggle in, in certain ways to get the words out. I need my eyes to be going up and down in certain ways, you know, and I need my sweat pores to be sweating, obviously, because here I am sweating. I need my hands to make all these gestures, and, and you all know I need my hair. <laughs> I couldn't preach without this hair. I have my Garfunkel hair. I, I need my body to, to do this. Couldn't do it without it. There'd be a, if my mouth all of a sudden got shot with Novocaine, there'd be a major hysterema going on here. I'd be, I, I should have to teach me sign language really quickly or something. I, I couldn't do it. Uh, you know, so also, God's, God's serious when he says we're the body of Christ. There's really work for us to do, hysterema. And so the question is this. The question is this. Will we use our ergos, our energy, our say-so, Will we use that to be in synchronicity with God? Will we conjoin our ergos with his power and, and, and join our life with his life and, and get, our, get our life in sync with his, synchronicity, in sync, and get our, get our attitudes in sync with his and get our actions in sync with his and, and, and get our, our time and our money in sync with his, with, with, with his will? Our, will we step up and play our part? God needs us to do that because there's a hysterema in the world that we're to fill. And we join our life with his for the mutually advantageous uh, advancement of the kingdom. It's mutually advantageous. Why? Because now, if we step up, this hysterema uh, gets filled. And if we say yes and step up, we get the honor of filling it. It's mutually advantageous. And now, if we, if we lock this in, and take it seriously, we can begin to understand why Paul is joyful as he's suffering. Uh, look at being a co-worker of God always involves pain. It always involves sacrifice. Always. At the very least, you've got to say no to yourself. You've got to die to your self-centered way of living. That's painful. It always involves some sacrifice. Uh, and sometimes it requires your life. Paul had to give his life. It, there's always pain involved in being a co-worker of, of Christ because we live in an oppressed world. But if you say yes to this, I will live in synergy with God, then your life takes on a meaning it would never otherwise have. You get, we get the honor of partnering with God. We have the honor of, of being the arms and the legs and, and the mouthpiece of Jesus. We, we have really the honor of Simon in helping Jesus carry the cross. We don't care, help him carry the cross to atone for the sin of the world, but we are carrying on the work of the cross because we're applying the work of the cross to the world all, all around us. What an honor. What an honor. What a joy. We, we have the, the honor. Yes, Amen of conjoining our life with God's life to make an eternal difference in, in this world, to matter, to be significant. Our life, if we say yes, takes on an incredible importance. God needs us. You couldn't be more important than that. 
So some, some circles, that's going to sound absolutely blasphemous. But if you've been listening to the context of this, I hope you can see that this is a sign of God's strength. He's so strong, he doesn't need to monopolize the power. He dares to give some of it away, and now he says, will you partner with me? I'd love to, to transform this world. We, we get the honor of having a life that has eternal significance, making a difference. And this is, I think, what our reward is that Paul talked about earlier. Our reward. I don't think it's some lollipop or crown or something like that, and those are metaphors, I suppose, but... Um, no, the, the, the reward, I think, is, is looking back from all eternity and seeing the ripple effects of the kingdom in your life and, 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 and throughout the world. It's, the, the reward is, is looking at, at, at how everything, that, every time you were in sync with God, it made a difference. It's our reward. It's our satisfaction. Uh, you know, every, every act of love, every act of service, every uh, mouth that we help feed, every person that we help uh, give a house to, the ripple effects we'll be able to see throughout all eternity, and that will be our joy. That will be our joy. That's why it says, I'll talk more about this next week, but Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. The joy was knowing what it accomplished. So also, and this is a good thing for us to meditate on sometimes, just try to envision the consequence, the eternal ripple effects of what we're doing. Every, every, every sacrifice you ever make that's in sync with God, you, you have the joy of seeing that go on forever. And not in a prideful way. That's not a reward. Like, oh, look what I did. That's shallow. It's pathetic. And if you're mature in Christ, you know that there's absolutely no joy in that. That's, pretty, that's dumb. Look what I did. But the joy is looking at the beauty of God refracted throughout the creation and being able to see that you participate in that. You made a difference in that. You contributed to that. And the, the glory is all on God, but he used us to bring that about, and that's our joy. And now you can understand how, why Paul rejoiced in the suffering that he was going through. What a joy, what an honor, what a privilege to be able to sacrifice and suffer to further the kingdom. I get to God needs me to step up and fill a hysterema. I'm doing that right now, I, I hope. I, I think I'm doing that right now. This is a vacuum, and, and I play a little role in that. We, we all have a different role to play in that. There's a hysterema, and, and, and God needs me to do that. I, I get to be needed. I get to be needed. And I, I then have the privilege of showing my love for God and my love for people and my love for the gospel by stepping up and sacrificing for that. What an honor. What a joy. And throughout eternity, I'll be able to look back and, and see the difference that that made, and that will all reflect the beauty of God. That's the reward. That's the joy. And so the question I end with is this. And it's really simple, so basic. But will you say yes? Will you say yes? Will I say yes to taking my life and all that's a part of my life, the energy that I have, the say-so that I have, the influence that I have, and get it in sync with God, living in synchronicity with God, being a co-worker? Will I, and doing that, will I fill in the hysterema that's in my life and in the world around me? And that's a hysterema is it, whatever's lacking, wherever the kingdom is not. Wherever the work of the cross is not yet applying, he needs us to apply it. Will you step up? Will you step up and, and say yes to that? Um, so I, I want to end. I know I'm a little over here. I just want to go one more minute, though, because I want this to be sealed in our hearts. I'm such a passion around this. Close your eyes for a second here. And just, here's the thing. First, ask, ask yourself the question, will you say yes? Will you say yes? For some here, it might be the first time you've ever said yes in submitting your life to Christ. Do it, and welcome to the kingdom. Uh, for others, we've done this for, for years and years, but this is the kind of thing we got to do every day. Will you say yes and resolve in your spirit, I will be a co-worker. I will live in sync. As the body of Christ, I will live in sync with God. 
And then I want us to wait on the Holy Spirit here for a moment and ask God to reveal to you right now at least one hysterema that you're supposed to fill. It will involve sacrifice and suffering. It always does. But didn't it, the reason it's there is because it's easier to have it there. <laughs> so what's the history? Maybe something in your life or in your family or at the workplace or, or a ministry. Or, what comes to mind? Where, where's there a deficiency? Where, where is the kingdom absent? Where's the work across the cross not being shown forth? And then is God calling you to fill that? Will you say yes to that? So right now, let's wait on the Holy Spirit for 30 seconds. Let him reveal it to you. Yes, Lord. Say yes. Mm. Ah, what an honor. What an honor. What a privilege. What a joy. We get we get to suffer. The ways of God are so funky. <laughs> we get to suffer. If you get that, we get to. We get to. We get to be needed. We're significant. We're important to him. We matter to him. He's not an unmoved mover. He's Jesus Christ. I'm going to close in prayer here. And as I do, I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And, and I invite you, encourage you, if you have any hysterema in your life, any concern, any worry, whatever it is, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. They're wonderful prayer warriors. I'm telling you, man, there's anointing on some of these folks. And everything you share with us will be held in confidence. But Abba, Father, as we leave here, I pray, Lord God, that that yes would uh, just reverberate through our life. I pray, God, that that yes, we would not forget it, that we'll, we'll, we'll fill in history, uh, historyma today. Uh, we'll make the sacrifices necessary and, and suffer in whatever ways are necessary to do your work. You need us to do your work, and we need to do your work. It's a mutually advantageous uh, mission that advances the kingdom. Help us, Lord God, to remember to say yes and to bow the knee of our heart in saying yes to be your co-workers, your body, carrying out your will on earth as it is in heaven. And all of God's people said, and remember, amen means yes, all right? So all of God's people said, hey, yeah, amen, yes, or yum. Okay, God bless you guys. Go out, build the kingdom, love you.